landed at the first of two of Peter's letters that he writes to the churches. We're going to get to chapter 2 today. We're only reading one verse. I know you just sat down, but I'm going to ask you to stand back up, and it's just going to be for a short little while. We're reading 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Again, we stand week in and week out to be reminded that this is where truth comes from, that it doesn't matter what the world has to say. It doesn't matter what other people around you think. It doesn't matter all the opinions that are out there in the world. At the end of the day, we look to the primacy of Scripture. We hold God's Word as first and foremost for our lives. So we stand for that week in and week out. Let's read 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Here we go. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You may be seated. Thank you so much. All right, before we dive into those verses today, we've got some ground to cover. Before we dive into those verses today, I wanted to build up a little bit of background. A couple, three years ago, we did a series looking at Paul's letter to the Romans. And when we got to Romans chapter 9, we ran into uh, what the church historically has referred to as the doctrine of election. And this is the concept that God chooses some people for salvation. That God chooses some people out of a pool of potential candidates to become Christians. The Bible calls these chosen people the elect. In Romans chapter 9, Paul uses the example from the Old Testament of God choosing Jacob. There were two brothers, two twin brothers, Jacob and Esau. Esau was the older, uh, Jacob the younger. Of God choosing Jacob over his older twin brother Esau. Um, and then Paul uses that or equates that with the Jewish people living in the first century, the Jewish people of his day, saying, hey, look, the Jewish people here in the first century, God has chosen some of you. Uh, he's declared that he has elected some of you to be his followers. Um, he calls the Jews who did not come to faith in Christ, or, or rather the ones that did, he calls them the elect of God. He equates those that did not come to faith in Christ as the Esau's of history, those that do come to faith in Christ as, uh, as the Jacob's of history, the elect or the chosen. Paul uses a passage from Isaiah as a proof text uh, that his theory on this is correct. He quotes Isaiah chapter... Uh, or he quotes it in Romans chapter 9 and verse 27, Isaiah crying out concerning Israel, a prophetic cry about what it is to come. He's basically saying 750 years or so before uh, the first century, there's Isaiah, this prophet. He's out there declaring some things about Israel. And Paul says that prophecy from 250 years ago is being fulfilled right in front of our very eyes. And what's the prediction? He says, verse 27, though the number of the sons of Israel, quoting here from Isaiah, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. So Paul concludes that from amongst the Jewish people living in the first century, that God has selected or God has chosen certain ones from amongst the Jewish people to come to faith in Christ. That's the whole thrust of Romans chapter 9. If you spend time reading Romans chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, he gives a whole explanation, goes on to explanation of why God would do something like this, why God would keep a remnant of Jewish people in the first century preserved for himself. Um, Again, the purpose, though, of this is that some of the Jewish people were going to reject their Messiah. Many of them did, in fact. In 70 A.D., um, God decided that it was time for him to punish those that had rejected their Messiah. In 70 A.D., the Roman legions, led by General Titus, headed down into Israel. I've got a picture of this for you here. It's just a painting uh, done a couple of hundred years ago by someone depicting the destruction of Jerusalem. You can see Titus there on that precipice with all the Roman legions behind him. They're out looking over the city. The city is in ruins. 
Um, and so they decimated everything on their way down to Jerusalem in 70 AD. They decimated the Israel countryside, and then they encircled the city of Jerusalem, the capital of the nation. And then uh, Josephus, one of the historians from the first century, who actually happened to be in the city when this siege began, um, talks about how, the, how there was over a million people inside the city seeking the, the security of its walls. Uh, Rome put this, uh, put this siege against them for several months, and eventually the city walls fell, and, the, and Josephus records that the streets ran red with blood as over a million people were slaughtered. Um, again, all of that happened in 70 A.D. Y'all say that with me, 70 A.D. I want that to be firmly in your brain. Uh, 70 A.D. was exactly 40 years or one generation away from the time that Jesus ascended back up to heaven, which also fulfills the exact time frame that Jesus gives for when this destruction of Jerusalem would happen. It's talked about in Matthew chapter 24. But knowing that that destruction was coming, God preserved a remnant of Jewish people unto himself. God spared a group of Jewish people from experiencing that destruction. And Paul calls those Jewish people the remnant of God. He writes in Romans chapter 11, all part of this whole little piece there of Romans 9, 10, and 11. He writes in Romans 11 verse 5, So too, at the present time, at the time that Paul is writing, before 70 AD, he says, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Notice the word chosen. It's going to come up again in Peter's letter. The chosen are who? Who have we just learned that the chosen are? The remnant, the Jewish remnant, right? The ones that were, became believers in Christ. Jewish people pre-70 AD who selected, who God selected or chose to escape the destruction of Jerusalem that these biblical writers know. When you read through all the letters, all the epistles of Paul and all the other people who wrote in the New Testament, it seems like they know that something's coming and it's big and it's going to be disastrous. And so this is what they're referring to. They know that this judgment of God is coming. Verse 7, what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. So the Jewish Christians obtained it. But the rest were hardened. Again, talking about the first century Jewish people. So you can see there, he's equating that the Jewish people who came to faith in Christ in the first century were the Jacobs of history. And the ones that were hardened in their heart, that were rejected God, they were the Esau's that God did not choose. So he's got this elect or this chosen group, this remnant. Let me put all this on a timeline because I know I'm throwing a lot of date stuff at you. And I think the timeline might help us kind of see how all this sort of stuff plays out. You can see there at the tail end of the timeline, you've got 70 AD. This was the, the momentous uh, occasion where the destruction of Jerusalem took place. And if you go back to the beginning of the timeline, you've got 33 AD. This would have been when Jesus ascended back up to heaven after his resurrection. Or perhaps some scholars say that it was as early as 29 AD. Um, so uh, you've got those two dates on the book ending uh, all of this. And then there's this period in between there, this 40 years leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. And you've got Jewish people living in the world that are making decisions whether or not they're going to follow the Lord Jesus. And so for some of those Jewish people, they would become part of this remnant. Um, it's, and so we're looking at a generation, right? We're looking at 40 years uh, transpiring between when Jesus ascends up to heaven until the destruction of Jerusalem takes place. Paul writes his letter to the Romans explaining to them the role of the Jewish people in this intermediary period that some of them will come to faith in Christ. He calls them the remnant. He uses the language of the chosen. He uses the language of the elect. Now what's interesting is on that timeline you'll notice that Paul writes his letter to the Romans in 57 AD. But along comes Peter writing his letter, which I hadn't pointed this out to you yet. We'll see it when we get to 2 Peter. But in, second, in his letter to 2 Peter, Paul refers to Paul's 
I'm, I'm wrong guy. Peter refers to Paul's letters as Scripture. So Peter in 63, 64 AD, when he's writing this letter that we're reading right here, he's looking back on what Paul has already written in 57 AD and calling it Scripture. Isn't that interesting? That even in the first century, they regarded these writings of Paul as holy Scripture. And so Peter, looking back to and drawing from the authority of what Paul has already written, brings some of that to bear in his own letter. I know this is like, Gordon, I don't even know where, I feel like we're in class here. I mean, what's happening? Uh, it's all going to come together, I hope. Um, so anyhow, he calls this, uh, and we get to, when we get to Peter's letter, okay, when we get to Peter's letter, and we come to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. I mentioned this to you several weeks ago. Let me just review it real quick. He, ad he addresses his audience, and this is who he says his audience is. He calls them the elect. Similar words, right? as what Paul writes in Romans chapter 9, words that had just preceded Peter's letter by six or seven years. He calls his audience the elect. He calls them exiles of the dispersion. Now that word in the, in the Greek is the word diaspora. The word diaspora, especially written by a Jewish author, Peter, could mean no one else but the Jewish people. Jewish people who had been displaced across the Roman Empire. Jewish people who had been displaced through the centuries in places like Babylon, uh, in places like Egypt. People who had been drawn from their homeland for economic reasons or by force to live abroad. And these Jewish people or people of the dis exiles of the dispersion um, are Jewish people that have, have, are living outside of the motherland, outside of, of native Israel. Um, and so these people are keeping their faith alive, though. They're in places like Cappadocia and Bithynia and Pontus that Peter sends this letter to. They're in these locations, and they continue to raise their children to know the Lord. They continue to celebrate the festivals and, and observe the Jewish calendar, and they break um, unleavened bread on Passover, just like the Jewish people generations before them had done, just like the Jewish people back in the Promised Land, back in Israel, are doing. They continue to keep their faith alive. Paul himself was part of that diaspora. Paul was born in the city of Tarsus, which is on the northeast corner of, of the Mediterranean Sea, far from Israel. My point is that when you take into account that Peter addresses his audience as the diaspora, and then couple that with the language of exiles and election, it is hard not to see that Peter's recipients were Jewish people who had come to faith in Christ. People who viewed themselves, think about this from the perspective of somebody living in that little 40-year window between when Jesus ascended back to heaven and when the destruction of Israel is coming. These group of, and these people knew something bad was going to happen. I mean, the, the biblical writers have been telling them, writing to them, warning them that God's judgment was coming upon Israel. And these Jewish people who are now Christians living in that window are viewing themselves, looking at their, their own families and the families that they're raising as this remnant of God that Paul refers to in Romans chapter 9. You say, well, what's the big whoop? Yeah. I mean, why, why does any of this even matter, right? Well, the big whoop is that the who the elect are. If Peter is writing his letter to Gentiles, to the church at large, to you and me, then we are the elect. You follow that? Or if he's writing this letter to Jewish people in that small 40-year window who have come to faith in Christ, who have professed Jesus as the Messiah, then that means that the elect are those people in the first century, Jewish Christians. And so, you know, I'll leave that to you. We'll, we'll walk through some more of this here this morning, but I'll leave that for you to decide who you think he's talking to. 
Uh, let's turn our attention to the verses for today with all that kind of floating in the background. Let's dig in here. We're going to start at verse 6. Verse 6. Um, Peter writes, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, For it stands in Scripture. In other words, it is written in Scripture. And now Peter is going to quote from the book of Hosea from the Old Testament. Okay? He writes, verse 6, quoting from Hosea, Behold, this is God speaking through Hosea, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him, he's referring here to Jesus, in this chosen precious stone will not be put to shame. Think about this for just a moment. If you're a Jewish person who is living in the first century, who has professed Jesus as your Savior, and you have just announced to your family that you have done this, and that you have come forward and been baptized into Christ. And, I mean, what are grandma and grandpa supposed to think? Probably going to be kind of a difficult conversation on Thanksgiving. Or, well, they didn't have Thanksgiving. But anyhow, whenever they all got together at Passover, um, what are mom and dad going to say? What is the larger Jewish diaspora community that's around you, wherever it happens to be that you live, how are they going to respond to the fact that you mean you're telling me that you think Jesus is the Messiah? You mean you're telling me that you think that we were wrong in crucifying this man? You mean you think that he is the, the Lamb of God born from the foundations of the world and his blood was poured out as a final once and for all sin offering for all of us? Yeah, I do. And so you can imagine the tension that would have existed within families and within the community. And so Peter, writing into that context, says, not using his own authoritative voice. Remember, he is the head of the church. Instead, he turns to an authority that is higher than himself. He looks to the scriptures themselves. And he says that Hosea told us that this was going to happen. In fact, Hosea was just quoting God who told Hosea that this was going to happen. And so he said, God says that God would lay in Zion this cornerstone. Now, Zion is an Old Testament reference to the Temple Mount. And again, a very Jewish-laden reference. So he's, again, more evidence of who Peter is writing this letter to, uh, using words like Zion. I've got a picture for you here. It shows the Temple Mount. Uh, and so Zion, this is, I mean, immediately, as soon as Jewish people would have heard the term Zion, this is what they would have thought of. They would have thought of the Temple in Jerusalem. They would have thought of Jerusalem itself. And so Peter reminds his Jewish audience of what the prophet Hosea had predicted, that God was going to lay in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And that this prediction comes with a wonderful promise that whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Even though the local rabbi has been out to your house and tried to convince you that you were wrong in your conclusion, despite the embarrassment that your family says they feel, an embarrassment that I'm sure Peter heard from his own Jewish family and from his own Jewish roots, he says, hey, look, go and follow Jesus because Hosea said, God spoke through Hosea telling us that whoever believes in this cornerstone will not be put to shame. And you can imagine, friends, being in the first century, living in that context, having made that declaration that Jesus is the Messiah, that would have been comforting. Peter finishes out the quote from Hosea in verse 8. He says, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's what Jesus represents to those who will not believe. Now flip back over me to Romans chapter 9. We're not quite done with that yet. Romans chapter 9, verse 33. Paul is in Romans chapter 9 right in the thick 
of making this uh, teaching, uh, of demonstrating that the Jewish people who live in the first century, who have come to faith in Christ, that they are this remnant. And so Paul, using that same language of the elect, using all of that same language of being chosen, using the same language of a remnant, and he's talking to Jewish pe- about Jewish people who will come to faith in Christ, and he encourages those Jewish people who are going to come to faith in Christ, Paul does, with the same quote that Peter uses. Listen to the words, Romans chapter 9 and verse 33. Behold, I am laying in Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Friends, we cannot be so blind as to ignore the similarities between these two texts, between what's going on in Romans chapter 9 and who Paul is referring to and what's being stated in 1 Peter chapter 1 and chapter 2 and who Peter is writing to. These guys are talking about and talking to the same group of people, Jewish people pre-70 A.D. who have declared that Jesus is the Messiah. They are the chosen, they are the elect, they are the remnant of God. Again, what's the big whoop? Well, the big whoop is that we tend to sit down with the text. Here's, here's kind of what we do. We tend to sit down with the text, and I read the Bible devotionally. Don't, don't get me wrong here, but we tend to sit down with the text, and we read ourselves out here into the pages of Scripture. Instead, what we should do is start with the Scripture and then work out toward your life and mine. Um, and so... Some of what's been done is with this text, with 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, is people who started out here, they had some predetermined conclusions, and they read into the text a proof text of their already predetermined conclusions. Does God choose certain people for salvation? Of course he does. Romans chapter 9 teaches that. There's, if you don't have room in your theology for the doctrine of election, then you need to grow your theology because it's right there in Scripture. Peter is, or Paul is arguing for that. In Romans chapter 9. And again, here Peter uses that same language affirming the concept of election. But does God choose everybody who comes to salvation? Maybe. But you can't use Romans chapter 9 and you can't use the letter of 1 Peter as as a means to prove that. You say, wow, that was like a long ways to go just to make that point. Anyhow, uh, so... uh, what we teach here at Hebron um, is a limited election, a limited election. Yes, God does choose some people for salvation. You know, there's people in the course of human history, the Martin Luthers of history, that God says, you know what, you're going to be on our team. And God hit him with a lightning bolt, literally. Hit him with a lightning bolt, turned his life around. People like the Apostle Paul knocked him off his horse, blinding light from heaven. Who are you, Lord? I'm the one you're persecuting. And there are some people in history that God just says, I'm, I'm picking you. You, know, you don't get to pick what team you're going to be on. I'm picking you. And the Bible uh, uh, corroborates that. So we teach here a limited election. All right, let's finish this out. Verse 9. But you are a chosen race. Again, he's talking to the Jewish Christians. Now, the word that is translated there, race, in English, is actually the Greek word, henos. I've got a, a, a slide here that shows you this Greek word, henos. And uh, what's interesting is that the writers of the ESV and some of the other translations as well translate that word here in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 as a chosen race. 
But what's interesting is that the word, it's used 21 times in the, in the New Testament. Everywhere else that that word henos appears, it's always translated generation. And how long is a generation? 40 years. I don't know if those translators were trying to be sneaky. I don't know. Uh, but it seems to me that when you say a chosen generation, it's interesting R.C. Sproul in his commentary points this out. That, look, this word should be translated a chosen generation. When you hear the word generation, you think a short window of time, right? Just a short window of time, 40 years. But when you hear the word a chosen, talking to his audience, calling them a chosen generation. But when you hear the word race, well, we could be talking about many, 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 many generations. You know, a whole bunch of people. Um, again, how long do we say a generation is? In a Jewish perspective, 40 years. And the idea of a generation is different than the idea of a race. A race is a group of people across many, many generations, like the Italian race or the Germanic race. But a generation, that is a short window of time, uh, 40 years. People living in just a tight, specific point of history. That may be part of a particular race, but they're only living for a short while. And so Peter calls his audience a chosen, a select group of people, generation, genos. Um, that is, a people who lived at a certain point in history. Peter calls his audience also a royal priesthood. And that's pretty remarkable because if I'm a Jewish person, I know that the only person that can approach God are the priests. People that have gone through all these uh, ceremonial cleansings and have done all these sorts of things. But Peter's saying that, hey, look, because of the Lord Jesus, because he is our high priest and he's our mediator now between God and heaven and us, we can, uh, we can now access the Father. We can now bring our own offerings. We don't have to go to the temple to bring God our offerings and our worship and our praise. We can approach God through Jesus. And so he's expanding, or rather erasing, the lines between priest and parishioner. Uh, verse 9, he says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. Again, if he's writing to a Jew, group of Jewish people who have become Christians, and he calls this audience a holy nation, I mean, who would they have thought of? Ethiopia? Probably not, right? Uh, Italy? No. I don't think that would have been in their thinking. Again, they would have thought of the holy nation. Well, that's us. That's Israel. That's who you're talking about here. And so the Jewish people saw themselves as a special people. Friends, if the holy nation is us, if Peter's audience that he's writing to is us, then, the, all, then Peter's talking to Gentiles and Peter's calling us Gentiles, the holy nation, then that means that Peter believed that God has replaced the Jewish nation with us, with the New Testament church that we've been grafted in the divine, that God has cut off the dead branches, and that God is completely done with the nation of Israel, ethnic Israel. They are in the rearview mirror. God has moved on in history. And so if we want to beat the drum that Peter's audience are Gentiles, well, then we better be ready to prepare to accept and embrace replacement theology. All right, let me read those descriptions again. Almost done here. He says, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Friends, again, does this not sound like Peter is talking to Jewish people? Peter is addressing his own countrymen, people from his own uh, bloodline. And I'll, I'll leave that for each of you to, <clears throat> to decide what you think. All right, let's shift gears here and let's turn to the question you've probably been waiting for me all morning to get to. Um, what difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, if Peter's writing to specific people who lived at a specific time in human history... Um, and addressing specific uh, concerns that they may have, then, I mean, 
what, what, what difference does this make to me? What, what does any of this have to do with my life? It's a great question, and I'm going to attempt <laughs> to answer it. Um, this whole exercise that we've just participated in, I hope, drives home the point that we cannot make the Bible mean whatever we want it to mean. We cannot make the Bible mean whatever we want it to mean. There are rules that we must abide by if the Bible is going to be a consistent authority for our lives. And one of those rules when we approach Scripture is that we have to pursue the original intent of the author. How do we get to the original intent? Well, we examine things like the historical context. We look at what's going on geopolitically, what's going on in that part of the world. What sorts of pressures are they feeling from outside of the place where they're living? What sort of pressures are they feeling politically from inside of the place where these folks are are living? We ask questions like, when was this written? You see how important this is. To whom was this written? And what were the dominating factors going on in their world? Um, How do we get to original intent? We examine original languages. We examine the context of the narrative itself. Paul calls this, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, correctly handling the word of truth. I mean, the result of having correctly handled the word of truth is that we feel confident that we have arrived at the original meaning. And then we can take that eternal truth and then work outward from God's eternal truth to your life and to mine. Let us, and so um, President Thomas Jefferson uh, shared this concern when it came to how future Supreme Court justices would handle the Constitution. Now, I know the Constitution is not the Bible, but the principle of interpretation is the same. Take a look at this quote from Thomas Jefferson. He writes, concerning future Supreme Court justices, he said, we must carry ourselves back to the time when the Constitution was adopted. Recollect the spirit manifested in the debates. And instead of trying or inserting what meaning may be squeezed out of the text or invented against it, we must conform rather to the probable one in which it was passed. In other words, the document that he and the others signed, he was afraid there would come a day when people who were not in the room, were not part of the debates, did not understand the meaning of some of the words and the phrases and the intent behind those words, and then they would misconstrue it, or worse yet, would twist it and make it mean something that it was never intended to say. Friends, a Bible in the hands of liberal scholars can be a very dangerous weapon. We must be careful, therefore, to avoid reading into the pages of Scripture conclusions that we wish were there, but that the original authors never intended to say. Friends, a Bible that can say anything is a Bible that means nothing. Let us then commence to study, to doing the hard work of biblical interpretation with an aim of zeroing in on the target, and this morning the target being 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9. And then when we feel that we have discovered God's truth, let us then work outward toward our lives. Every text of Scripture, friends, please, please hear this. Every text of Scripture has only one meaning. I hate it when I hear people say to me sometimes, well, that's just how you think about the Scriptures. You know, that's just your interpretation. Of, as though there was more than one outcome that Peter had in mind. Friends, every scripture has only one meaning. Our responsibility is to figure out what that is. But there are a multitude of ways that we can apply 
God's truth. Number two, second difference that this makes to your life and to mine, and this is be my last point this morning, second difference that this makes is that when I look across Scripture, there is this recurring theme all through the pages of the Old Testament, all through the pages of the New Testament, of a remnant of God. That's just a recur- You hear that word over and over again. When the people of Israel being disobedient, when the people were, were, were going their own way and living in, in greater and greater depravity, there was always this faithful remnant of God that sought after his word and wanted to live obedient to his word and were raising their children to know God's word. You know, sooner or later, America is going to wake up from this nightmare that we have created for ourselves. It's going to happen sooner or later. And when America does wake up, and when America is ready to hear from God's word again, America will need faithful followers of the Lord Jesus who are rooted and grounded in God's truth to instruct her and to direct her. We have a generation coming along now who have no memory of who God is or of his truth. And so when that generation or subsequent generations finally say, you know what, we want to know who God is. Who is there that could tell us, that could show us, that could teach us? Friends, there will be that faithful remnant of God that will be ready to step in and fill that gap. Again, when we look across the pages of Scripture, we see that God always, always, always preserves for himself a faithful remnant. And friends, being a part of a church like Hebron and learning about God's word week in and week out and instructing our children in the ways of the Lord and in the authority of God's word and planting God's truth in the hearts of little people that run around this building, friends, when we do those things, we are nurturing, we are growing, and we are preserving that faithful remnant. Amen? When we read Bible stories, the little ones in the nursery, we are raising up the remnant. When we teach Sunday school or join in on youth group summer trips, we are raising up the remnant. When we grab hands and pray before meals in our home, we are raising up the remnant. When we read Bible stories to our kids at night before we send them off to bed, friends, we are raising up the remnant. Here's what Peter told the remnant of his day to do. It's what the remnant through biblical history and church history is always supposed to do. He said, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 9, Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Now down through church history, that verse has been looked to as a call to evangelism, and it is that. But friends, may I remind us that our first obligation, our first ministry, is to our own home. To our own home. Friends, let us declare the God who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. First, and before we go out into that world that so desperately needs to hear about God and his excellencies and, and how, his marvelous light, before we even head out into that world, let us not bypass our own homes on our way to go save somebody at work. Amen? Let's pray together. Most gracious God, we thank you for just clarity about what we're doing here week in and week out. God, we know that America needs truth spoken into her heart. We also know, Lord, that there's going to come a time when America's ready finally to hear your truth. In the meantime, may we be faithful May we be obedient. 
May we be focused and intentional about raising up our children, raising up a future generation that will carry on your truth so that, Lord, when the floodgates are ready to open, there will be a remnant there that is saying, I know the truth. I know who God is. I know who you are searching for. God, we pray for those little ones down the hall right now. We pray for the teenagers amongst us. May they hear and receive your truth. God, we pray for the adults that are striving to live this stuff out in front of them. God, may we be faithful. Lord, we thank you for your broken body. We thank you for your shed blood, which makes all these things possible. We commit these next few moments to you, Holy Spirit. Stir and work in our hearts, we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.